Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is the first of several episodes entitled Freak Ships of the 19th Century. It sounds like something a teenager has made and published on YouTube, but in fact you will be delighted to hear and no doubt slightly impressed by my ability to sniff out gems from the archives that the title is based on a pamphlet that was written in 1966 by a chap called Jay Guthrie, who worked for Lloyd's Register and created this booklet, as it says on the title page, for private circulation amongst the staff only, which makes this all feel wonderfully illicit. But you can certainly see why he was interested in this topic of maritime innovation, or the oddities of maritime innovation, I should say. Jay Guthrie writes in the introduction... As the premier classification society, Lloyd's Register played a leading role in putting shipbuilding on a rational basis, substituting mathematical rules for the rule of thumb, and compelling owners and builders more and more to consider questions of efficiency, safety, and seaworthiness through the medium of classification. This evolution has taken some 200 years, and in the process we have accumulated a very considerable amount of knowledge in all things nautical, which have from time to time been embodied in the rules. Thus, for any given type of vessel constructed within that period, we can produce a very good technical description, either directly from plans, reports and records, or indirectly from the rules. This, of course, for the conventional ships, the common or garden cargo and passenger ships, which, however much they may vary among themselves in appearance and purpose, still conform to a traditional design. But what of the unorthodox ships, the rebels from tradition? those monsters and freaks from the nautical world which throughout the whole of the 19th century attained transient fame or notoriety before disappearing from the scene forever. Though the society must have followed the development of these oddities with considerable interest at the time, we have kept no records of them in our archives, and it is doubtful if the present-day surveyor could name or describe even one of them. It is for this reason that an attempt is made in the following pages 
to fill in the gaps of our technical knowledge by describing the more unusual vessels. Now, there will be several episodes in this mini-series, beginning today with The Monitor. And I will now hand over once again to Mr Jay Guthrie, who will paint for us the scene. This class of vessel sprang from that famous, if inconclusive, action between the Merrimack and the Monitor during the American Civil War in 1862. And as far as can be ascertained, 45 of this type were built in the USA, while the design was copied in Britain, Germany and Russia. It may be recalled that the Federal 44-gun steam-wooden frigate Merrimack was scuttled and subsequently salvaged and converted into a floating battery by the Confederates. She was trimmed down to the waterline, given a sloping casemate armoured with four-inch rolled iron rails and armed with ten heavy guns to be used as a blockade vessel. Although renamed Virginia, the Merrimack being a river in Massachusetts, she was always known as the Merrimack. To counter this blockade vessel, John Erickson was commissioned by the federal government to build his Monitor, and this was completed in February 1862. She was launched within 101 days of signing the contract, and such was the urgency that no curved plates or sections were used in her hull. An interesting manifestation of the mentality of the naval board is that the contract called for Erickson to furnish the ship with masts, spars, sails and rigging, and this, of course, was very wisely ignored. The steel hull showing midships section consisted of two shapes resting one upon the other. The lower section was flat-bottomed, sharp at both ends with entrance at 80 degrees and sloping sides at 54 degrees to vertical with no round of bilge. The length was 124 feet, breadth 34 feet with 6 feet 6 inches depth. The upper section, similar in shape to the first, was 174 feet long, 40 feet 6 inches broad and 5 feet deep. The draft was 10 feet 6 inches, giving 12 inches of freeboard, with 1,200 tons displacement, and she is stated to have been capable of a speed of 9 knots. The deck was lightly armoured, the side armour being 5 inches thick above the waterline to 3 inches below, all armour consisting of 1 inch thick iron plates laid on timber. The engines were horizontal twin-cylinder trunk engines, 40 inches diameter by 22 inches stroke, taking steam from two horizontal boilers, driving a four-bladed, nine-foot diameter propeller. The characteristic feature of Monitor was, of course, the revolving gun turret, a steel tower 20 feet in diameter, nine feet high, with eight inches of armour, carrying two 11-inch Dahlgren smoothbore muzzle-loading guns, the hole mounted on a fixed vertical steel shaft and resting on a bronze deck ring. When in action, the turret was jacked clear of the deck ring to allow it to be rotated by an independent steam engine. On top of the turret was located a tiny pilot house, fixed to the vertical shaft. Now, I think we should leave uh, Mr Guthrie's slightly pompous incisiveness there and turn to the modern world. So, to find out more about the Monitor, I spoke with Andrew Chung Han Lin, Curator of Ship Plans and Technical Records at the National Maritime Museum in London, who has helped us out before in our episode on the remarkable K-class steam submarines of the First World War. It's one of my favourite episodes and includes an astonishing animation of a complex engineer's drawing of the submarine, showing how it worked. You can find that as well as many other fabulous videos on our YouTube page, so please find the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube. For now, though, let's get back to that interview. And as ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the excellent Andrew. 
Andrew, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is all based on a document called Freak Ships of the 19th Century, which I believe you've had a look at. Um, And uh, we're talking today about monitors. Can you just paint a picture of sea power at the time and uh, what was going on exactly? Uh, Yes, I'd be delighted to. So the 1860s were a time of really, really turbulent change. The first half of the 19th century had seen the great naval powers, and particularly Britain, sitting very comfortably on this great superiority in traditional wooden-hulled broadside warships. But that was beginning to change, and and the advent of iron as a shipbuilding material and also as a a form of armoured protection was beginning to intrude upon this world. And uh, even before the American Civil War and the beginning of um, the ironclad warship and the monitors, uh, Britain had already seen that that change was in the air. So the Crimean War, which was fought in the mid-1850s, had... um, had witnessed not just successful French operations using armoured floating batteries against Russian positions, but the British themselves, uh, particularly a gentleman named uh, Captain Cooper Coles, had been experimenting with guns mounted on armoured rafts, and he'd even created a strange thing called the Lady Nancy, which uh, you could see as a precursor to the shallow draft armoured warship, which became so prevalent during the American Civil War. So, so the, the Admiralty was beginning to have to face up to the fact that um, change was in the air. And, and by 1859, when France commissions their first broadside ironclad, um, La Gloire, uh, Britain was watching, but, but this really made, made us sit up and take notice. And of course, you then get our response, which is uh, the, the twin ironclads, HMS Warrior and HMS Black Prince. Now, these ships, they continue the tradition uh, of the broadside warship design, but they're very powerfully armed, very fast and very well protected. Mm. And they're huge as well, aren't they? When we go on to talk about the monitors, I mean, they're not necessarily as as big at all as what's gone before. No, the monitors are quite small. And in fact, the the, the slightly derogatory description of it's a cheese box on a raft uh, it's quite apt in some ways. Uh, but I believe, a cheese box. <laughs> yes, I, I believe that was a dismissive Confederate uh, description originally of th- this incredibly flimsy looking thing that looks like it shouldn't even float because you could barely see the hull. And then you've got this outlandish looking structure, w- uh, w- which looks like nothing on God's earth, really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I suppose let's. Well, I tell you what. Let's let's describe the USS Monitor while we well, to start off with, because um, there'll be people listening who actually don't know what a monitor exactly looks like. So let's give that a bash. It's going to be tricky, but we can we we'll, can do we'll, it. We'll um, do our barely best. afloat is what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, and and you would be absolutely right. So the original monitor, as designed and as put to sea, I, I, I'll, I'll say as put to sea uh, on a cautious note. Um, you could barely appreciate the length of her hull because it was nearly always a wash, even in calm conditions. So this vessel would have been about 170 foot long and it would have had a beam of about 40 foot, give or take. But it had an incredibly shallow hull. We're, we're thinking of a draft of barely over 10 feet. So you could think of it as a as a self-propelled raft with pointy ends. And sitting in the center of this raft is is a, a rather squat cylinder, 
Uh, and, and there is no other feature except for a small box near the bow, which is her pilot house. And that is it. No funnel, no superstructure, very little to show an observer that this is, in fact, a ship. It looks more like a submarine, really, from a distance. So basically, it's, it, it, if you catch the angles right, it looks like a floating turret and nothing else. Essentially, yes. And, and that, was, that was a deliberate uh, bit, bit of design work by, by John Ericsson, her, her Swedish designer. He, he wanted to present as small a target profile as possible. And this was, was his way of achieving it. Just keep the hull out of the way, really, by setting it so low in the water that nobody can fire at it. And the only visible mm. target is this tiny, this tiny turret, um, which is probably fairly hard to hit, uh, except at the closest of ranges. Yeah. But in the turret, there is an enormous gun. Yes, or in Monitor's case, too. Uh, so as, as Ericsson designed her, she was meant to have carried two rather enormous 15-inch Dahlgren naval guns, which, which were about as heavy as you could get in the era. The, these were serious weapons, but... Unfortunately, for her, her debut voyage, the two, the two guns that she was meant to have were not available. So uh, she put to sea with 11-inch guns instead, which were still fairly powerful, but not, not as powerful as a 15-incher. Yeah. And could the guns fire all the way around? Or, I mean, this, this pilot box that you talk about that must be on the bow, surely that interrupted her ability to fire forward. Is that right? I'm afraid it, it is right, yes. So, so Monitor, in theory, as Ericsson envis envisaged her, was meant to have had a 360-degree arc of fire for her guns, but the pilot house was in the way. It was a mistake that was not repeated in any of the subsequent Monitors. Mm. Well, let's talk about the subsequent monitors um, very briefly. Um, so the uh, the USS monitor went on to inspire others to build something similar. Yes, yes. Uh, certainly the US Navy, went, uh, after the Battle of Hampton Roads in March 1862, uh, after some hesitation, they recognised the value of this type of ship. And they spent the rest of the American Civil War cranking them out. So every uh, every subsequent monitor was an improvement on the original. But they even experimented with going larger. So towards the end of the war, you start to see double turret monitors. And in one instance, uh, USS Roanoke, there was even a triple turret monitor, although she was not quite as successful. Uh, meanwhile, in Europe, um, monitor mania spreads in that direction. So in some countries such as Russia, which formerly had not even considered the monitor as a type, there was a sudden enthusiasm for this class of vessel. And the Russians um, begin copying the design. In Britain, we had already begun experimenting with our own turret. Again, Captain Coles making his, uh, his experience felt and known. Um, but the Battle of Hampton Roads and the U.S. monitor building program um, pushes the Admiralty down two roads. One, to begin developing turret ships that are like the monitor, but more nuanced and more suited for British uh, strategy. Uh, the other is to find alternate ways of countering the monitor. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that Battle of Hampton Roads, which kind of started this all off. Um, uh, tell us what happened there. On, on the 8th of March, 1862, a Confederate ironclad, the CSS Virginia, often called the Merrimack because she was built on the burnt out remains of the US frigate Merrimack, was, um, uh, was sent down the James River to break the US blockade. 
Um, she did this very successfully because she fought against traditional wooden warships, which, although they were very powerfully armed, simply could not match her. Her guns were able to devastate the wooden ships, while their replies could could not penetrate her armored hide. Luckily for the Union, um, the Monitor turned up that very evening and was able to meet the Virginia the next day, the 9th of March. And given the amount of expectation that both sides had placed upon their armoured monsters, the results were surprisingly inconclusive. The two ships circled each other for the better part of four hours and a bit, uh, essentially bouncing uh, iron shot off each other fairly ineffectively. Um, And at some point, they tried to break the deadlock by resorting to really traditional methods. So the Virginia tried to ram the monitor. The monitor at one point attempted to return the favor. Um, The Virginia finally, in some desperation, tried to get close enough to board the monitor um, but <laughs> but but the, the nimbler Union warship was able to avoid that too. So so in the end, uh, um, brought about by exhaustion and lack of ammunition, if nothing else, the two combatants parted, and that was the Battle mm. of Hampton Roads. <laughs> very well explained as well. Um, so the Virginia that was a strange looking vessel as well, and very different to the Monitor. Very much so. Yes. So the Virginia was uh, um, she more resembled the the. French efforts during the Crimean War. If you if you imagine a barn roof on a very low hull, but this barn roof is thickly armoured with iron plates and conceals a battery of 10 heavy naval guns. That was the Virginia uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> very good. So the two vessels look remarkably different indeed, but it's, it's the monitor that goes on to enjoy um, you know, a lengthier history. There aren't lots of people trying to recreate Virginias everywhere. No, no, there aren't. Um, the Virginia, d- despite her merits, the Virginia is often seen as representative of, a, of an older and less successful type, which fades very quickly as the century progresses. Um, in, in the popular imagination, it's monitor that points to the future. And, and it's easy because of the, the advent of the turret and the armour to draw lineage between um, Monitor and the great battleships of the First and the Second World War. And she's often seen as the start point of that process. Now, that that, that is in some respects an oversimplification, as you know, and there, there's a lot of uh, meandering and further dead ends over the rest of the 19th century. But with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that Monitor started something very important that carried on into the 20th century. Yeah, and, and influence the development of gunboats as well. I mean, smaller but heavily armed vessels, which could be, um, you know, you used in a variety of ways. Yes, yes. the 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 uh, uh, the attraction of Monitor was the the versatility because um, she could operate in very shallow waters. She She's basically, in addition to being an invulnerable warship, she's a power projection device. So all of a sudden, with monitors, the US Navy can push their blockade very close to the southern coasts. They can project power inland and to the south's rivers, and they enjoy this immunity from most of the Confederate defenses. And Uh, Around the world, imperial powers with possessions overseas or a similar need to project power inshore or to defend themselves against powers trying to do that to them see the attraction of this type of vessel. Because ultimately, compared to a big seagoing ironclad like, say, the warrior again, 
monitors are very cheap to produce and their their manning requirements are very low compared to other warships. So how many would have been on the the original monitors crew? We're looking at around 50 to 60 men, give or take. It's still quite a lot for a small vessel with a very shallow draft, isn't it? That would have been horribly cramped, I suspect. It, it was. Space was at a premium. And, and when you look at the surviving accounts of men who served on monitors, I don't think you could find one who would say that they enjoyed the experience or found it comfortable, <laughs> particularly. Um, all agree that they were they were hideous things to serve in. They they were perpetually hot because so often you had to have your hatches closed because even in the calm conditions, you would get a lot of water ingress if you left anything open on the deck. Um, mm. The ventilation systems were never quite up to scratch, so the air got very stale. You were very conscious that although you were serving in something that was technologically very special, and that was a big thing in the 19th century, you were also living a far less comfortable life than your compatriots who were lucky enough to serve on the more traditional wooden ships. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about propulsion? We haven't talked about that. What about, what about the, the engine on board the monitor? The engine on the monitor was fairly straightforward. So you, you're looking at, a, um, they, they had a choice of steam engines. In the end, the original monitor had a, had a lever steam engine, which was a fairly common uh, means of propulsion back then. Um, but you, you would be working in a cramped environment uh, in close proximity to fairly dangerous machinery and health and safety was not not the thing it is now. Um, and I would have hated to have been a stoker on a monitor because even though they would only have a couple of boilers and there wouldn't be as many of you in the stokehold, it was every bit as awful as being a stoker on a more conventional ship. And, and again, because of the lousy ventilation, even more so. Yeah. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm intrigued by Ericsson, the guy who invented this, um, because I mean, if you look at images of the monitor, it's it is so radically different from anything that's gone before. Then this man's something of a visionary. What do we know about about John Ericsson? 
we know some things uh, about Ericsson very well. Uh, in other areas, he was a tiny bit secretive. Um, so he 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 hailed from Sweden. He was briefly in the Swedish army before he moved over to the United States. And even back then, he was he was an inventor and a tinkerer and quite a successful one. Uh, when the Civil War began, he already had a bit of a bad rep with elements of the U.S. Navy because. He had worked on a gunboat called the Princeton uh, and had also helped design one of her guns. There'd been a rather frightful accident on the Princeton, which had killed some rather high-ranking U.S. naval officers. Now, the accident was not Ericsson's fault, but the mud stuck. And the fact that he was a rather mercurial and intolerant character who tended to see um, less intelligent human beings as, as, as a, almost a lower form of life didn't help. He could be quite impatient with people who didn't take his point of view. And he had no compunction about telling them what he thought of them, which is not always the best way to, to get through life. It doesn't help that Ericsson also edited his own backstory when, when he came to the end of his, his life. Um, so he he destroyed a lot of his personal papers. Uh, um, I, I, I suspect there was an element of removing his failures. Um, and he also made certain claims which are impossible to substantiate. So one of the most famous ones is his claim that he tried to sell the monitor idea to the French in the 1850s. But a very thorough search of the archives of the French Ministry of Marine can't find any evidence that they ever received such correspondence for him or that, they, that any such proposal was considered. So, so we have to be a bit careful with Ericsson. There are those who love him and those who hate him and those who are in between. But he's a very, he's a very controversial character both then and now. Yeah, I love the idea of, um, of perhaps there weren't any any written correspondence because it was all done in hushed conversations. Um, a bit of a subterfuge there. So how did he get involved in the, the Civil War and particularly the Union Navy? Or did the Union Navy just approach him? Um, he responded to a rather urgent call for ironclad designs that was put out by the US Navy. And the Monitor was one of three competing designs that were submitted. All three were built. Ultimately, Ericsson's was the most successful. But she almost didn't get there. Be because of the aforementioned troubles, Ericsson had a great deal of difficulty convincing the US Navy to accept his design at first. And the, the fact that she was so outlandish uh, didn't really help. But in terms of his political views, Ericsson was a very strong believer in the United States and the preservation of the Union. And, and as a patriot, he, he wanted the design to help prove what a genius he was, but he also genuinely wanted to help the Union war effort. And to his credit, a lot of the patents of the Monitor, he transfers to the US government without charge once the design's accepted. And he also made the very daring promise that the Monitor would be built and commissioned within 100 days. The, the US Navy was aware that the Confederates had begun working on, on building the Virginia, and they knew what sort of a threat she could pose if she got, in, got into the water and tried to break the blockade. So, the, so there was a great deal of urgency to this work, and Ericsson promised to fulfill all of their requirements. Mm. How did the uh, monitor's career come to an end? I'm afraid, uh, um, rather predictably, she sank in bad weather off Cape Hatteras on, uh, on, on New Year's Eve 1862. So she had a really short life, essentially from March to December 1862. Yeah.
And then was rediscovered and um, and studied and brought up? Yes, yes. The wreck was first found in the summer of 1973, and it had been carefully monitored ever since. And I'm, I'm thrilled to say that much more recently they recovered the turret and, yeah. and large sections of, I believe, the pilot house and a part of the hull as well. So, so these are currently undergoing preservation, as I understand it, but they can be visited. And... And I, I am really thrilled that this has been done because she is she is such an important milestone, not just in U.S. naval, but really in global naval history. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the link with uh, shallow inland waters and I'm thinking here of the Royal Navy exercising sea power inland in africa in china or throughout asia essentially and um, must have had such a big impact on on um how empires operated uh yes yes and no uh for some empires um the monitor concept was a godsend for others it was more problematic and if i if i stick with looking at britain because i suppose she had the most by way of global commitments to worry about at the time there are certain parts of the globe where they they invest in monitor derivatives. So out in Australia, New Zealand, you get very strange creatures like the uh, the gunboats Paluma and Gayunda a few years later, which resemble monitors but are not quite monitors. They're sort of a, a cheaper pseudo monitor design, less technically advanced. Um, in other areas, you get. Um, I, I'll call them armoured rafts because, again, they're almost monitors, but they're not quite. But at the same time, the Royal Navy is also wondering what threat this poses to their oceanic control. Um, and although it's fairly clear during the Civil War that, that monitors are no great shakes out at sea, um, the monitor herself is not alone in succumbing to bad weather. The US Navy loses a few of them. And, uh, and 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 so the the British realise that here is something that is a serious threat that needs to be countered, but is the answer a, a, a monitor copy or is the answer something a bit different? So they go down these multiple roads of, on the one hand, building monitors for imperial defence in certain locations, but also trying to work out how they could def whether the monitor type represents a threat at sea, and if so, how do they beat it? Yeah. And all the time, guns are getting bigger and stronger. I mean, it's all very well designing a monitor like the USS Monitor, which could cope with the guns that it had. But as the guns get bigger, then you've got, you've got real problems fitting them on the vessel, haven't you? Oh, absolutely, yes. And this is something that everyone struggles with. So the, the very last of Ericsson's monitors, um, a pair known as the Puritan and the Dictator, um, were these, if you imagine monitor on steroids, um, these things are enormous. They're much faster. Um, Puritan and dictator are, are sort of capable of oceanic travel, but they're never tested in that way. Um, but essentially, they are monitor, but significantly larger. And one has 15-inch guns. The other is actually designed with an intended armament of 20-inch guns. So, so even monitor herself by 1865, 1866 would have been hopelessly obsolete. Um, and Britain was paying attention to these developments because in 1866... Um, just to give give everyone really something to worry about, a double turreted monitor called the USS Miantonimo, a bit of a mouthful, um, successfully crosses the Atlantic in eleven days on a on a formal visit to Europe. Now 
the voyage is not without its issues. Uh, Miantonimo herself, for one, didn't carry enough coal to make the journey unaided. So she had to be towed part of the way by a wooden paddle steamer. So they're not yet the they they've not yet beaten the opposition in some senses. But it points to the future and it shows that a monitor type can safely cross the Atlantic on, only six years after um, monitors foundering. That's fantastic. That's a story I'd like to know more about. I'm just wondering to end with, did anyone kind of solve the problem of how to attack them? Because I'm just thinking here that the 1870s, it's the same time torpedoes are being developed. But the thing about the monitors, they've got such a shallow hull, there's not very much to aim at. No, there isn't. You had to get extremely close to hit them. And the the theoretical answer that was come up with was to equip your ships with extremely heavy guns uh, as far as you could. Um, and get in close to a monitor. The other problem the monitors never got over was their relative lack of maneuverability and their comparatively low speed compared to other ships. So if you could outmaneuver a monitor, that that was another way to do it. If if um, if you could literally keep out of its firing arc, because mon- monitor training uh, engines for the turrets were not all that efficient. And I don't want to over-egg this one, but it was not impossible that you could, with a sufficiently fast vessel, try to out-turn and out-maneuver a, mor- a monitor's turret and just leave it bewildered while your own guns are busy trying to knock armor plates off it. Uh, in, the fi- mm. in the final um, analysis, if you, if you had a monitor out at sea, ramming it would probably achieve decisive results. Um, yeah, um, that's exactly what I was was just thinking. It's almost like some of the uh, how you deal with some of the early U-boats. Yes, yes, it's the same. It's the same concept of playing on their vulnerabilities because if you hit it hard enough and tip it far over enough, it will flood and sink of its own accord. Because as the as the long suffering monitor crews of the American Civil War knew only too well, even when they weren't when they were sorry fully buttoned up. Um, they were not entirely waterproof. And if water came up to the level of the turret, then you were really stuck because in theory, the the turrets could be lowered into a waterproof brass ring. But even then, no no monitor in service proved to be waterproof that way. And there are many accounts of the crews in some desperation applying caulking around the, the rims of their turrets when they weren't in action just to try and stop the water ingress. Um, so they they never lose that vulnerability. And of course, as the Confederates discover when they're trying to defend their ports, monitors, if anything, are are more susceptible to mines than than even wooden vessels are. So they called them torpedoes back in the day, but what we would call mines today, contact mines, they claim two of the larger and more advanced US monitors over the course of the Civil War, and they sink dramatically quickly. Uh, in on both occasions, it's a matter of moments, and and part of the trouble is that the mine, of course, makes a fatally large hole in the monitor's hull. But unlike a conventional ship, which would flood and sink a little bit more slowly, the monitors just fill with water far too soon for anybody's liking. Yeah, I think the photographs I've seen, I think after the Battle of Hampton Roads, is it where you've got uh, images of the turret and the dents in it, which have been caused by. Um, by the iron shot, I'm I'm surprised that the, the crew were were physically able to fire a gun in that turret and also receive shot without being concussed. I'm I'm surprised they're not all lying on the deck with their ears bleeding. Um, it is a surprise, uh, and, and it must have been thoroughly unpleasant. It, 
it is hmm. not an experience I would have wanted to have gone through because it must have been like being trapped inside a giant temple gong. Uh, and and uh, I, I can't even imagine what it's like, but um, but you're absolutely right. In theory, they should have all been unconscious with their, their you know blood yeah. running from noses and ears. And there were reports of spontaneous ear bleeds, nosebleeds, and also uh, as the battle progressed, the crew, through a combination of exhaustion and repeated hits, were becoming a, a bit more slow. So at at the outset of the action, the monitor was firing every her guns every two minutes. By the end of the action, she was approaching a shot every eight or nine minutes. So you you can see the effect that's being had on the human material. And it and it didn't help that that in the tiny, tiny cramped turret, the effects of physical shot from the shots hitting and 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 the sound waves um, must have been really, really much more much more severe for the monitors crew than their equivalents on the Virginia, where at least when you're in the giant armored barn-like structure, you're not so compressed. Um, there's less transmitted shock, uh, and so you're able to to keep your your equilibrium a bit better. I wonder whether anyone's done any work sort of studying um, deafness or uh, mental health issues. Um, you know, among sailors in the early years of big guns. I bet that would be fascinating. It certainly would. Uh, no one has, to my knowledge, certainly not in the, the, the classic periods of the monitors, that call it the 1860s into the 1870s. But given the amount of written material that's left, I, I wonder if someone really ought to take a look into that because it would be very, very interesting. Yeah, but hard to pin down. But I mean, it's I suppose it's a bit like rugby players today, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're discovering now that people playing rugby are suffering from dementia in their forties and fifties because of you know repeated blows to the head. And I'm just wondering whether the concussive effects of the noise of the guns would have had a similar similar effect. I would have thought so. Yes, yes, because you're you're constantly at it, um, and this is particularly true of the later monitors. So when when you look at the U.S. Navy's operations in harbors like Charleston. The job of the monitors is to go in day in and day out and conduct these seemingly endless duels with the Confederate shore batteries. And so these poor fellows are, are laboring in these hot, sweltering turrets, um, firing their guns ceaselessly and only really getting a break when they run out of ammunition and have to put back out to sea to meet their supply ships. And um, and I, I do wonder, because hardly anything is said in the glow of triumph when the United States wins the, the Civil War, you don't really get any, any mention uh, uh, of what these fellows went through, um, simply because their, their work was, although essential, was probably regarded as unexceptional. It's not, it's not a glorious naval battle that sticks in the memory. It's just an endless bombardment mission. And... Um, and I and the combination of living conditions, the physical damage, and as you say, the the concussion and the wear and tear that working these weapons would do to you over time, uh, it it would be very interesting to know. Yeah, and I, it's it's on the one hand you've got the bleeding ears and the bleeding noses from your immediate problems, but what I'm particularly interested in, I think, is um you know how it affected them forty years later, and I bet it did. Anyway, we don't know the answer, but I hope that someone will do a PhD on that. Please do so and get in touch with me in three years' time when you've completed it and passed it. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much indeed for spending the morning with me talking about these wonderful ships. My pleasure, Sam. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Many thanks for listening. Now, there will certainly be more episodes in this series on freak ships of the 19th century. Next up, we're looking at circular ships and then cigar ships. Yes, ships shaped like cigars. And we will end with a particularly splendid episode on a unique vessel named the Cleopatra that was designed and built to bring Cleopatra's needle, yes, that ancient Egyptian obelisk that sits on the banks of the Thames, all the way back from Egypt to London. And that's all coming your way soon. This podcast was brought to you as ever from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. So please do what you can to see what both of those amazing institutions are up to. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk and the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History and Education Centre at hec.lrfoundation.org. UK. Find us on social media, tell everyone about us, and do please check out our YouTube channel. That's the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube. Cheerio!